Welcome, I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are episodes where my co-host, Paul Bishop, or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice campfire and spend some time talking with friends who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is best-selling Western romance author, Lynn Eldridge. Lynn is a former president of the West Virginia chapter of Romance Writers of America and earned an honorable mention in their Golden Heart Contest. Lynn is the author of several historical and contemporary romance novels, including Desire and Deadwood, Remember the Passion, and Tame the Wild. Her next book, soon to be released, is Skyrocket to Surrender, and she is currently working on another historical romance titled Hearts and Mountains. In addition to her writing career, Lynn is a licensed clinical therapist and dedicates one day a week in an outpatient behavioral health facility in Charleston, West Virginia. Visit her online at www.lynneldridgeauthor.com. Thanks for reining in today with us at the virtual campfire, Lynn. Thank you, Rich. I'm so excited to be here. So your Western romance stories consistently rate top reviews at Amazon. By way of introduction, are you a Western author who writes romance, or do you think of yourself more as a romance author who writes Westerns? I think of myself as a romance author who likes to wrap the story around Western historical either figures or maybe an event. And sometimes it's a little bit of both, but I always have the romance uh, piece of the story kind of at, at the heart of it. So that kind of comes first when you're thinking about a new project, you think what kind of twist or character could I have? And then kind of how would that fit in the in the environment of the West? Right, exactly. For instance, I was out and lived out in South Dakota for about 15 months years ago. And I remember walking into Deadwood's number 10 saloon. And when I walked in that saloon, I, I could see where the hero was. I I thought about the heroine maybe owned the saloon next door to the number 10, which is where Wild Bill Hickok got shot during a game of cards. The first line of my book in my head as I was standing there was aces and eights, the dead man's hand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Gosh, that must have been exciting. And did did it did it kind of come to you all at once or did you did you see snippets of it? You saw the characters, you thought, okay, they're here and this is what's going to happen. And how does that happen? Do you go back and write notes or how does that work for you? Usually I'll have where I think the story will ultimately lead. And as I write it, I will tell you that the research part will often give me some of the best parts of the story. Usually I'll have, like, for instance, with the Wild Bill and the Number 10 Saloon come to mind, or um, I'll think about the Alamo story that I wrote, Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. And so much of my research will spark an interest or I'll find out something that really happened in history. And gosh, it just slides right into the story and makes it all the better. That leads into something else that I saw on your website, a quote that says, who doesn't want to research a bit of romance? Whether you are writing historical, contemporary, or any paranormal romance, you'll want to have the facts right. Accuracy lends credibility and makes your story believable. I think that's absolutely true. And can you give us a specific example from your Western writing where that research, whether it was the Alamo or Deadwood or something else, that research proved critical to the story? 
Sure. I can give you a couple of examples. I just mentioned the Alamo story, which is Remember the Passion. And it was probably my second, maybe even third read-through of the manuscript. Because, you know, we we writers, when we read our manuscript, we, we think we're reading what's on the page, but we're really often reading what's in our mind, which is why we need a good editor. But I remember when I was writing one of the scenes in uh, Remember the Passion, and I had the hero and heroine coming into San Antonio de Bejar, which is what San Antonio was called in 1836. And I was referring to them coming in from the Guadalupe Mountains from the east. And I realized, oh my gosh, that would be from the west. And in my mind, if I had left that horrible glaring air, I would have lost all credibility about everything else I I said in the book, which was painfully and historically accurate. I told myself I might never write another book that had a 13-day siege that was so well-known, not only by historians, but maybe by folks in general. And if they didn't know it, they could certainly Google it. So that siege at the Alamo, my son would say this about it. If my mom said that it rained on March 2nd, 1836, you can count on the fact that it rained March 2nd, 1836. <laughs> so to, to say they were coming in from the wrong direction in the Guadalupe Mountains would have just destroyed all the accuracy that I had spent almost three years getting right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, and it's true today more than not to take anything away from writers in the past. Certainly they did their research too, I know. But for those of us today writing historical novels, the fact checkers are just a quick Google search away to, to get us. Oh, yes, <laughs> definitely. And and sometimes, for instance, when I was writing Tame the Wild, in my research, I ran across, I was trying to really find um, what the names of railroads were on the West Coast out in California from uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco in 1906, were there railroads and could I possibly find who owned what railroad, what it was called? And in that research, I ran on to the big four railroad tycoons, which were Stanford, Hopkins, Crocker, and Huntington. And they all lived on Knob Hill in San Francisco, but they all had somewhat tragic endings and uh, not to mention the earthquake. And that part, just running into that, haphazardly in research, it is. it takes up, gosh, a, a chapter or two in the book because it works in so beautifully. So that's, research is just invaluable and, and will give you a whole another flavor and aspect to your book that is just almost like a freebie for, for trying to do your duty and get the, get the uh, historical accuracy in line. That's a great point. It's like a reward, you know, you're working so reward. hard, you know, and there, and there, there it is. And it fits in perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So how, how did you get started writing? Is that something that you, you always wanted to do? It's one of my favorite little stories to tell. I had never thought about writing at all. And oh gosh, it's probably been about 30 years ago now. I had in my mind this this vision of this woman, probably in her 20s, and it's nighttime. 
She's got a long dress on. I, I know that it's uh, back in the 1800s. She's kneeling on this riverbank. River's dark, gloomy. She's not sure, you know, there's snakes, what's going on. And about that time, she hears a blood-curdling scream from the woods that's behind her. She knows that it's the person who's been keeping her uh, captive and has brought her to what she thinks might be Missouri, not completely sure. And so she decides this is her opportunity to escape him. She hops into this canoe, pushes it herself off down through what turns out to be the, the Grand River, a tributary to the Missouri. Now, that's all I had. But it kept replaying and replaying in my mind. And probably, oh, four or five days went by. And about the end of the week, I decided, okay, look, I'm going to write that down. Because I think when I write it down, it'll go away. (laughs) Well, I got that whole scene written down on notebook paper, pen and ink, that you know, notebook paper. And when I got that finished, I had the next scene and the next and the next. And I wrote a thousand pages before I got that story completely down and out of my mind. Did you write longhand? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I did. I did. In fact, I mean, 30 years ago, I I didn't have um, a a computer. I remember going to Radio Shack because I thought I cannot, I cannot write in longhand. And the typewriter, that was no good. I, I often wonder how Hemingway and some of those guys how, like you said, how much their books might have changed if they had our modern uh, computers. But I went to Radio Shack and I bought a word processor and I really didn't know how to use it. And so I told them I needed a private lesson. And that during this private lesson, I didn't want them to give me a sales pitch. I didn't want to know the history of the Radio Shack. I just wanted to know how to make a chapter, how to write a book, how to indent, how to do my paragraphs. And so I had to take a private lesson to learn how to do that. And from there on, I used my word processor. That's fantastic. You know, uh, my wife and I were just talking about the days of the typewriters. And, you know, it it would just be so interruptive now to have to stop every page and load up a new piece of paper. (laughs) Oh, yes, I know. And I visited, uh, speaking of Hemingway, I was in Key West years ago, and they have as part of the tour of his home where he wrote. And as I recall, it was up above his garage. And there's just this old fashioned black typewriter. And I just thought, oh my gosh, how tough would that have been? And how many changes might he or any of the authors of of his time um, made changes? What what might their book look like rather than to, okay, hey, I'm not retyping that whole thing. Let's just go with it. (laughs) Right, right. So as as a romance writer, what makes a great romance for you as a writer or I guess as a reader? I think when the hero and the heroine grow, when they change, for instance, in, in the book that I'm writing right now, which is The Hearts and Mountains, and I think it's going to be really fun. Uh, it has been so far. The hero has grown up here in West Virginia in the Tug Valley area. He's a Hatfield. The heroine lives across the Tug Fork River over in Kentucky, and she's a McCoy. Well, he has went away, oh gosh, 12 years prior, 11 or 12 years prior. 
to Philadelphia where he has become a doctor. And I go had to research, what does it take to become a doctor in uh, 1882 in Pennsylvania Hospital? And he's come back to um, see his mother and his, his aunt prior to an election that's about to take place. He meets the the heroine across across the river, and she does a lot of her mountain healing and medicine. And where they have one of their first conflicts is he's never going to stay in Tug Valley. She's never going to leave. If he doesn't stay in Tug Valley, he'll never help the people where he was born. If she doesn't leave to get the formal education, she'll never be able to help them as much as she could on her own with her mountain medicine. So they are coming to terms and growing and seeing things from each other's point of view. But it gets worse before it gets better (laughs) because the election takes place and it's somewhat infamous. So I'd like for them to change thanks to the other one, helping them to see something from a different point of view. That's a that's a really good point because I think about genre fiction so often as something you know that uh, it starts out with your characters and then they go through a bunch of adventures but then you know especially in a series book you always want the characters to end up sort of where they started so that you could start the next book and yes. I think a romance is is a little bit different in that sense I hadn't thought of that that you you do want them to grow and change obviously you kind of want them to get together if they just meet at the start of the book or or whatever yeah. that's right and. Usually there is is some obstacle, like the one I just described, that can be very current for today um, with folks and things that keep them apart. And I think one of the, the lines that the hero says in that book is they're so very close on what they both want. They both want to help people and they're both interested in medicine and are dedicating their lives to it. But they're so very far apart literally, geographically, um, and emotionally, if they can't come together on where they're going to practice this medicine. And uh, both of them are very uh, steadfast in their view of what what they want to do. And um, as the events of this election in 1882, which is very historically accurate and depicted as such, happens, it kind of jolts them out of their um, comfort zones. So they get the opportunity to see things from a different viewpoint. And there again, that history is there, as you said, is a bonus. That really fits in well with uh, the fact that your novels often include a section on historical background and a reader's guide. What can you tell us about that? Was that something you kind of wanted to do from the beginning in order to spur the reader on to new things? The first three books, which you mentioned, each have the reader's guide. and I had a a following of book clubs. And so I put the reader's guide in there. One of the leaders of one of the book clubs says, we'd love it when an author can give us some ideas of things to discuss in the book club, something that the author wants to have us consider. So I put the, the reader's guide in there for some of the book clubs. But my more favorite of the two is the historical background, because I think so often when you're reading a book with, uh, which you know might be fiction, but still has some nonfiction um, aspects to it, it's like, well, what happened to that person? Well, what happened in that incident? For instance, with my Tame the Wild and the earthquake, it's like, well, what what happened to San Francisco? How long did it take 
San Francisco to recover? What what was going on in the country? And did the country help out? Or what did the president think? And, and Tame the Wild takes place in 1906. President Theodore Roosevelt's in charge. Um, their cars are just coming on, onto the scene. It, there's so much going on there with the turn of the century and how San Francisco might have recovered. So I like that historical background to wrap up some of the loose story that you can't wrap up within your story because it's the future and it hasn't happened yet. So, for instance, like with the Remember the Passion, I say what happened to some of the, the folks in San Antonio that were at the Alamo who didn't perish, like Susanna Dickinson was there. Or what happened with Sam Houston after the Alamo? He was such a a big part. General Santa Ana being the Mexican dictator at the time. What happened to him? So I like the historical background because it can let let the reader, if he or she is interested, know, okay, so what happened after the romance ended? What what happened? Because it's all about America. You know, a lot of times uh, younger people don't know some of that history, whether they didn't get it in high school or they just didn't get it in, you know, their, their college was more specialized. I know there were a lot of things that I didn't learn in high school and there was an awful lot of history that we just didn't cover. And I learned a lot of stuff through the the fiction I read as I'm, I'm sure all of us who read and, and write do. Oh yes, absolutely. I always say uh, as a side note to, to one of my historical romances that you will absolutely learn about American history. And I only write about America from coast to coast. And I always make sure that somebody can learn something about the country that maybe they didn't know. Like you said, whether it, uh, you know, the, at, about the Alamo or who were the main characters or Deadwood, but it has Calamity Jane comes through there and um, Charlie Utter, who is one of um, Wild Bill Hickok's best friends. And um, Preacher Smith was there and Swill Barrow. Johnny was there and just all these characters who I ran across and Al Swearingen. And it's funny, people will ask me, did you watch the Deadwood series? No, I didn't. I did not want to be swayed or influenced in in any way. I wanted my book to be my story and, and research on history. But you can learn so much about Deadwood. One of my favorite things that one of my readers said to me was it she felt like she was a little fly sitting in the corner watching the story unfold. And that's exactly what I want. Paul and I recently shared an episode of the podcast, which was dedicated to Jesse James. And you have a book coming out set in the Little Dixie area stomping grounds of the infamous James Younger gang, Kearney, Missouri, Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and Kansas City, which uh, those are close to where I live. Please tell us about Skyrocket to Surrender and how does that all fit into Missouri? Skyrocket was Jesse James' favorite and fastest horse. This book was close to my heart because I was born in Missouri in a little town called Brunswick, which my grandfather said, you can always find it on the map because it's the biggest bend of the Missouri River. And sure enough, he would take me around parts of anywhere from Brunswick down to Columbia and Jefferson City and over to Kansas City to show me different places where he knew Jesse James was reputed to to be. And when I thought back about some of those stories that he had told me, I thought, gosh, I think, you know, I'm going to do some research on Jesse and Cole Younger. And that book starts in Adair, Iowa, when the hero is derailed on the train that he's riding. 
he's looking for a person who robbed a bank of a hundred grand. And here he is derailed in the middle of Turkey Creek, Iowa. He thinks that uh, it's actually the Ku Klux Klan because in history, Jesse James had put the the group into uh, the white sheets. And when he goes back to the express car and when they take their hoods off, no, it's not the Klan. It's the James Younger gang. And he's not quite sure which is worse. (laughs) So that's all historically accurate. And I take it from there and build the story that takes them from, as you said, Kearney to Kansas City, down into Oklahoma, uh, the uh, Cherokee Nation, and back up again. They are all over the Little Dixie area. And um, that was has been a really fun book to write. I am very keen on making sure that I visit all of the places I write about. So although I'd grown up in Missouri, I made sure I went to Kearney to the farm where the James boys grew up. I made sure that I went to St. Joseph, Missouri there on 12th street, which is where Jesse was dusting a picture of skyrocket when Bob Ford executed him with a bullet to the head. So I always find it's very helpful to me to see those places in person. So the skyrocket to surrender also built around the fact that the hero in the book does ride skyrocket through a good portion of the book because Jesse's made a deal with him. He can ride skyrocket if the hero will take his um, cousin, Elena James, off his hands. So she's not too happy about that. But they join forces and they really help each other out. So that was that's been a fun book to write. And that's coming out next. It's a great premise. So was Jesse's cousin, she's the heroine in the romance story. Was she a real person? No, she wasn't. I'm always careful to keep the characters who are real. I want to keep them historically accurate to how they were in real life. So I always make the ones who are going to be fiction that I can do whatever I need to with them. So I keep Jesse and Frank and Cole Younger. Bell Star is in that book, which is kind of fun. I always enjoyed the antics or history of Bell Star. I actually have a, a small marble top table authenticated to have belonged to Bell Star. So I have it in my office and it gives me a little inspiration when I'm writing about Bell. But the heroine in that book is on on the lookout for the man who murdered her father. She can't find him in her hometown. He's gone. So she decides the only person who can help her find him is probably her cousins, Jesse and Frank. So that's how she teams up with them right before they're going to derail this train. And she hops on the train thinking, well, she's going to help anybody who was hurt, which she ends up running right smack dab on page one or two, I guess it is, to the hero. And he thinks she's one of the James gang because they've all got these masks and hoods and different things on. So he's a little surprised to find out that it's a she. And he is there in Turkey Creek, Iowa. So he hints that he might have a connection to Alan Pinkerton. And he could let them know about Alan Pinkerton if they give him a ride out of Turkey Creek. Now, Jesse in real life was always known to ride with an extra horse so that the gang could switch the horses and always have one that was somewhat rested, not carrying a passenger. That fit in beautifully with the story. So therefore, the hero has a horse to ride and it's skyrocket. Oh, perfect. That sounds like a great story. It's a lot of fun. 
of course, I don't want to give away too much, but the person who Elaine is looking for is connected to the person that the hero, Jordan Hawk, is looking for. And Jesse and Frank both helped them put that together. So it's been a lot of fun to write and to, to weave in different parts of history along the way. So that's Skyrocket to Surrender, and that will be out this year yet or early next year? I'm hoping so. I'm hoping it will be out before the end of the year. Great. I'd like to wrap up our conversation, Lynn, by again pointing listeners to your website. It's www.lynn.com. And I'll remind our listeners to also look for your books on Amazon. So thanks for being with us today, Lynn. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, Rich. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making this podcast possible. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.